CT Startup Podcast, an inside perspective on the startup ecosystem in the great state of Connecticut. This is Eric Francis, Dave Menard, and James McLaughlin. All right. And so uh, we're missing Mike today because he actually um, had to do some entrepreneurial things and he had a meeting and could not be here. So we're just going to go on without him, actually. And so we're going to have another roundtable discussion. And today we are going to be talking with Mark and Annette from Macroscopic Solutions. So introduce yourself, guys. Hi, I'm Mark Smith. I'm the principal and co-founder at Macroscopic Solutions. Uh, we're a high-resolution imaging company based in Tallinn. I'll pass this over to Annette. Hi, I'm Annette Evans. Um, I'm currently a graduate student at UConn, and I'm heavily involved with Macroscopic Solutions and have been since the startup. Very cool. Well, thank you for coming on today. So I had the benefit of meeting Mark uh, early on in his entrepreneur career uh, through the Innovation Quest system at UConn. And it's been really my privilege to uh, watch Mark and Annette and uh, their original third partners, along with the company Dan Safner, um, see how they developed the company uh, and the product and to become, frankly, uh, a very successful company that's growing and has new ideas. So, Mark, why don't you tell everybody what Macroscopic Solutions does and how your product works? Sure. Um, So Macroscopic Solutions started with an idea, uh, which was to replace a microscope or a stereoscope. Um, So the easiest way to explain what it is our products are uh, is to think about uh, a landscape or a scene where you take a picture of, let's say, a national monument. You'll notice that in that image, there's a very large portion, almost 90% of the image that's out of focus. So what we do is we use a computer software program, which allows you to utilize multiple images of the data from multiple images and you stitch together uh, multiple focal planes. And the goal is to ultimately bring one final image uh, so that it's completely in focus. Uh, but we're doing that not just for large areas and, and landscapes, we're doing it for very, very small things. And so when we started, we were down to a resolving resolution of about 100 microns. So these are primarily for scientific specimens. Uh, however, within the last year, we've innovated and advanced the technology so much that we're imaging things in plain light that are now smaller than one micron. Wow. And and the example you used to use, and, and tell me this is still accurate, which was that you could take something, about a micron, and blow it up to some, about the size of an, the Empire State Building and still retain full HD resolution. So that's correct. So one of the benefits of our technology is that we can take full advantage of the resolution on a camera sensor, in this case being a DSLR. Uh, so with a microscope, uh, the extension that's allowed between the eyepiece uh, down to the microscope objective uh, is somewhat a limitation when you were to strap on a camera. So even if you were to strap on a 21 megapixel camera sensor, uh, it's going to be limited or reduced down to about 8 megapixels by the end when you take that image. And that's just because of the way light is behaving, it's the way the vibrations are in the microscope. So by doing away with the microscope altogether and getting very, very high quality optics and pairing it with very, very high quality cameras, uh, we can really preserve information and resolution within the image to the point where you can infinitely zoom into the image and magnify the image where you do not need to magnify optically. So you can take a 5x image and that will actually get you up to about 30x, uh, which is close to somewhere around 200 microns just with a 5x magnification. Objective. And that's great. So scientists, it allows for easier collaboration for one. So they can, instead of everybody sharing a microscope, they can quite literally take the picture, throw it up on a wall, and immediately just talk about it and analyze it. They can share pictures across computers and so on at much higher resolutions. Um, and 
you well, let's go to what your product is used for. Uh, I, I know you use it for a number of products. Who do you sell to and, and who asks you to do stuff with your product? Sure. So we do a number of things. Um, our very first customer ever was Brett Ratcliffe, Dr. Brett Ratcliffe. He's at the University of Nebraska, uh, and he's the museum curator there. So what he was using the Macropod for was to image larger things, such as scarab beetles. So these are things that are about three centimeters in size. Uh, and what he needed is a particular lens that was going to be able to photograph those beetles uh, fully in context, so that's the whole sample itself, and also with an unlimited depth of field, meaning that we want to bring that beetle completely into focus. We want no areas out of focus. Uh, but we also want to preserve detail. So Brett Ratcliffe had already published a book uh, on the Dynastine scarab beetles of, of, uh, of Mexico, uh, in that time, and since then, we've sold to paleontologists at universities such as UPenn. Um, we're at Harvard. We're at UConn. Uh, just recently, we're at uh, the University of San Diego, and we were branching out in many more ways. Uh, alternatively to selling the technology, we also give our customers the option to send us samples. So, for example, um, just recently, I had Kareen from, uh, I think it's Boston College, come down with a stalactite. The stalactites are pretty interesting because, one, they're they're very fragile. Uh, but one of the things she's trying to do is reconstruct paleoclimate by looking at this, this stalactite. So you can kind of think of these little lines that are preserved within stalactite as varves. So they basically preserve an annual record of what the climate was like at that time. So they can measure it. Now, oftentimes, you don't want to photograph these because they're very, very delicate. They're fragile. You don't want to break it because it's it's a very high, valuable piece of information that scientists can use. So what we try to do is we strapped it on our system and we automated two different axes. So we were actually able to generate a very, very massive high-resolution panoramic all the way through um, a stalactite, very much the same way you would image a core sample through rock. And we were able to pull it into the computer, analyze it, and, and process it so that everything was in focus. And then we can manipulate the colors so that we can highlight certain varves and certain areas within the stalactite so that we can quantitate certain things later. Great. And if I remember right, uh, the Smithsonian had actually sent you a few things to image. Yeah, so we, we, uh, we've been pretty well involved with the Smithsonian recently. Um, we went down there and spoke with Dr. Jerry Jacobs. He's a herpetologist there. He actually works on the same species of salamander as Annette here uh, works on. And... That was just basically an introduction, and then shortly thereafter, we started working with some of the coleopterists and the hymenopterists there, which are beetle people and wasp people. And then we gave a talk um, at the GNSI, which is the Guild of Natural Scientific Illustrators, which is hosted at the Smithsonian Institute. Uh, we were recently invited back to their annual conference, which this year is going to be at Arcadia University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and that's actually going to take place uh, in two days, so the 6th and 7th of, uh, of July. You know, Mark, I'm... Uh feeling smarter just for being in the room with you. <laughs> right? You're, 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 the, fa the fact that you and Annette are scientists def definitely comes through, and it's great that uh, your product is so geared towards your field. I mean, uh, one of the problems, or not one of the problems, but one of the things that um, we often underestimate is that some of the best ideas come from people in the field who need uh, to, new tools to work with. And it, you know, and so uh, we had remarked earlier that UConn had a uh, entrepreneurship competition with the School of Nursing, and they had come up, uh, seniors there had come up with new uh, ideas based on uh, their experiences doing their practicums at various hospitals. Um, and you were working on a solution that was something, you're a geologist originally, and uh, 
working on a solution to something that very much could help in your field. Um, and Annette is a biologist, same thing. And so that's, that's fantastic. Tell us a little bit about, you know, how the idea got started and the, uh, IQ experience. Oh, sure. That's an easy one. Um, <laughs> so a long, long time ago, uh, back when I was in high school, I was initially introduced to the technology and macro photography as a whole by my neighbor, Anthony Gutierrez. Uh, he's a molecular biologist at the U.S. Army Department of Health. Um, and what he generally looks at is vectors, so s s basically insects such as uh, ticks. Um, and <laughs> it would, that's, that's somewhat ironic because Nat's <laughs> here. She just pulled two off of her. She was in the field yesterday looking for her salamanders. <laughs> However, uh, it's, they're a huge problem. And for them, they needed a portable system that the basically the, the standard soldier for the U.S. Army could take out. Let's say they were to be bitten by something because it is a problem in foreign areas. Uh, and they don't know how to identify their side effects or their rashes. So now you can take a very, very high-resolution image utilizing a portable system and send it back to the experts, experts for identification. So I was um, first emerged, or that technology sort of first came to mind when he took me down there, and we started building the very first prototype together. Uh, ultimately, it was Tony's idea, and then this had always stayed with me as I went into college. I became a geoscientist. I started using the technology in my undergraduate research project, uh, at that time I was looking at basically crystalline and structural properties and deformation mechanisms within a sample that was collected from the Shushan Range in Taiwan. And basically what I was doing is I was looking at how the rock fabric was breaking under certain stress conditions, uh, generally caused from shifting tectonic plates shifting. Um, so I would use the macropod to successfully image um, those samples and then analyze them later. Uh, shortly thereafter, I ended up winning uh, the Sigma's Eye uh, poster presentation. I earned first place with the images I had taken and also my approach to analyzing the images. And that was able to employ me before grad school and after undergraduate, you know, uh, my time as an undergraduate, uh, where I was basically using the macropod to look at uh, fungus. So there was basically two different isolates of fungus that attack potatoes, it attacks things like rice, basically big crops that are very significant in certain regions. Uh, and what they were doing is they were mutating the virus and seeing how one virus or fungus would affect the other. And we would watch exactly how the two funguses would react um, as they would interact. Uh, so that was the next big step. And then I went off and did my graduate research and then finally found IQ right in my last year of my graduate research, which was unrelated to the project or to the macropod. So once... Um, I was in, well, it was my second year of graduate school. I, I had heard about a competition called the Innovation Quest Competition. Uh, and I started thinking more entrepreneurially. Okay, maybe I could take my idea and, and turn it into a business for the sole reason that in my experience as a scientist, there was a significant number of researchers that were not taking advantage of a technology um, that really could help them with their research projects in a way that the microscopes and the current optical equipment that they were currently using could not do at all. Um, so I had entered the Innovation Quest competition along with several other competitions across the state. And one thing that was so nice about the Innovation Quest competition is that they don't just give you a cash prize if you are to do well in the competition. Fortunately, I did. Um, but there's also a very, very large um, uh, group of mentors that are going to help you along the way. So if you need help with a patent, if you need help uh, assembling a product, if you need help with manufacturing, uh, basically any any simple or simple uh, challenge that you might encounter or have as an entrepreneur, there are people there that will walk you and help you through it. And that's what I found to be so valuable coming out of the Innovation Quest competition. 
And, and Mark is very modest. If I remember, you won that competition. Yes, I was fortunate enough to win that competition. <laughs> and, and a few others, I might add. So uh, the, the Macropod is really uh, an exciting product. Um, and so, so you went through the Innovation Quest Incubator. And then you always hit a stage I think is most difficult for entrepreneurs. Let's say you win the competition, you make it into the incubator, you have a lot of people advising you, you've got uh, sessions to go to regularly. And then after that, there's just this end. And you're kind of, the, the mentors are still there, but you don't have a regular schedule anymore. You're on your own, you're kind of floating, trying to figure out how to go next. Huh? What happened at that time? I think that's one of the most important things to realize is that when you're going through a competition like this, you do feel the support around you. But at the end of the day, you're not going to accomplish anything if you just give up on yourself. You need to motivate yourself to get to the next point. And one of the things that was really interesting is you learn a lot of surficial, very first order details through a competition, through any business plan competition, I'd imagine, that are very helpful. And they'll give you the right, right place, the resources to look in the right place. However, they're not going to get you to the next step. I mean, everyday tasks such as filing taxes, which form to fill out when you hire somebody, these are all things that you need to learn on your, your own. Um, generally, you're, when you're starting out, you're not going to have an accountant. You're going to have to do that sort of stuff yourself. You have to learn how to properly keep your books. You have to learn um, a number of things, along with even if you have a partner, you have to uh, basically establish an operating agreement between those two people. Um, which is very important later, as I've come to realize. And uh, those are all things that some of the mentors push you in the right direction, but none of it's really going to get done unless you take the appropriate measures and appropriate steps to do it yourself. That's right. Actually, in the last podcast, we, we talked a little bit about um, entrepreneur responsibility, that mentors are advisors, um, and sometimes they're going to have differing opinions, but it's always eventually up to the entrepreneur to figure out and take responsibility for their own decisions and to be the one at the end of the day that, that moves things forward. Annette, how did you get involved? Um, so as a biologist, the technology is really applicable to my research, and through my um, relationship with Mark, I was introduced to the technology and was trained on how to use it and um, in the past semester, as Yukon's purchased one, it's been my role at Yukon to be training people on how to use the Macropod properly to try and get more researchers using this technology to enhance their research. Fantastic. So is there actually a, uh, like a problem with uh, user adoption? Like, like do, do people, do the scientists, uh, is that just too much of an extra step? Is it easy for them? I mean, it, it... It's really easy to use technology, but um, particularly as it's not, you know, something that every individual you can buy yourself, you know, it's, there is a cost involved with purchasing mm -hmm. it. So you want to make sure people are using it correctly because or else they're not going to be able to achieve the amazing results that are possible. Yeah. So do you, I assume you sell it to the enterprise and then it, is it like per department? You know what I'm saying? Like, is it like, can, can only one department buy it or do you, does the school buy it? Like, how, how does that work? It totally depends on the university and the department on their funds. So sometimes individual researchers will have a grant that they incorporate the macropod into, in mm -hmm. which case their lab in particular like owns, in theory, that macropod. Okay. And sometimes, like in the case of Yukon, you can get multiple departments coming together and then the macropod will be housed in a central room or, or unit. Okay, so how big is the macropod? The size of a backpack. It's okay. like a okay, hiking, so it's not hiking a... back. Okay, so is it technically portable? Yes. Okay, so you can bring it into the field, right? Yes. Okay, nice. So is this, Mark, was this what you were talking about with the military was doing? Like, did the military already have this, this application or did, you know? 
Yeah, so that we at that time we were headed in the right direction. The system was not fully portable in a way that it becomes intuitive and easy to set up until macroscopic solutions came along. We really invested a lot of time in simplifying the product, making it easy, putting a manual together that will allow anybody to turn it on and go. Um, and from there, what we what we tried to do is we just took a, one of the best book bags we can get, which was from Eastern Mountain Sports, and created a custom foam. And it was our sole uh, goal to make sure that every single product we gave to our customers fit in that bag. Okay, nice. So, what was what would you say is one of the biggest challenges you faced getting the company off the ground? Um, I mean, there are several. It's extremely hard <laughs> to think of any one. Um. There's a lot of sacrifices any entrepreneur has to make. I think I was in a pretty good position coming out of college because I, I, I didn't have a lot of money coming out of college. I just, just basically have been in debt because I've invested seven years of my time, uh, for my undergraduate and graduate education. So I, I did know how to manage my money really well. Um, so one of the things that's, I think is very important for every entrepreneur is that they really do need to keep their money within their business because they never know what's going to happen. They don't know what bump's going to come next. So for me, I live on a very, very, very low salary. Um, and luckily, Annette here being my fiance, I mean, she was extremely supportive throughout the entire process. She's now an, an owner in the company as well. So luckily, I did have her. I had her financial support and I had, uh, her time. She also put in a lot of work into growing this company. Um, in terms of some of the other hurdles, it's really difficult to think off of the top of my head because I generally, I, I like to identify a problem and tackle it and I, I really do tackle those problems with a lot of enthusiasm. I really like it. It feels more rewarding in the end when I've actually finished it. Um, I think in terms of the whole company, I, I did have uh, one event, which I think was probably the most difficult event for us in the company. And that's, I think we mentioned uh, my, my partner and best friend, Daniel Safner. Uh, luckily enough, he came back from Africa. He was in the Peace Corps while I was away in grad school. But we both did our undergraduate degrees together uh, at IUP out near Pittsburgh. Um, we're both geologists. Like I said, he went off to the Peace Corps and, and I think what, right when I was finishing up my graduate degree, I asked him in a very vulnerable time if he'd like to join the company. And, and he did. And he helped me with a lot of enthusiasm. He, his work was amazing. He really helped us grow. But eventually we came to a turning point where he had decided that it's just not what he wanted to do for the rest of his life. He'd rather go back to graduate school. And, um, believe it or not, actually this weekend he's off to Fiji because he's already going to be volunteering his time and service to help kids there uh, basically learn science. So he's, he's a really great person in that respect, but it was really, really hard to lose such a great person within the company as well. So um, we basically did whatever we could to maintain our friendship, uh, maintain uh, our work, the level of work we did in the company, uh, and then ultimately try to figure out exactly what our next move was. So Dan is still involved. He's still helping with the companies. He's no longer an owner, uh, but we were able to buy him out with an agreement. And then uh, Net came on as as my official partner. So uh, one of my questions there is, and certainly feel free to answer or not answer as as much as you want. But uh, it's tough. I mean, it's one of the situations I think most companies face sooner or later is that they always start off with a group of people, but not every person is as committed to a company. Um, there's always, there's usually a singular voice or one or two voices that really lead and however many people may be on a team. And so working in accelerators, you see this all the time. People drop off of companies, they fall onto other companies. Um, and, 
you know, you always have to account for the fact of, well, who do I give equity to? Is that equity really for going forward rewards as opposed to past rewards? Is it incentivizing people? And then what happens if somebody leaves? We don't want sort of a rogue person out there holding equity that and their interests are no longer aligned with the management, especially in a small, closely held company. And for you guys, it's even more important because you're not only a closely held company, but you're not the kind of company that's going to seek independent financing, right? So you're not going to have VCs or someone else involved in the company, which means that every shareholder really matters. It's like a family of sorts, and you really want to maintain that. So, so when this happened with Dan, um, did, you know, I know, I know that you guys had an operating agreement that says if a person leaves, this is what happens, and and you negotiated a separate agreement. Was it helpful to have the backup agreement? Did that provide incentive to move forward? Um, it did slightly. Uh, so we had the operating agreement and it really did help in terms of actually, okay, how do we do this, um, properly? So I think in the beginning we were very naive. We didn't know how to do it. We wanted to do it in the simplest fashion. And then there was a point where we, we both came to realize, and it took me a little bit longer than, than Dan did, that he really did invest a full two years of his life, uh, to help grow this company. And he should certainly get something for that. So we had really thought through exactly what we needed to do. So that basically in the end, everything was fair on all parties and we did it in a way. And I think our relationship is so rare that, um, we were able to hold on to our friendship throughout it all. Um, in terms of, of actually trying to figure this out, I know, I know we didn't take an investment up front, but macroscopic solutions has never really been about profiting right off the bat. I mean, it's very, very good to say that we are scientists. We do this because we enjoy it. We, we, we truly believe we're, we're pushing the industry forward. Uh, we like what we do and it's, and it's, it's a ton of fun. So within that, pers- that, that sort of field of view, um, it's important to realize that we're doing a lot of things that are also helping the people around us. So we participate and donate our time in bio blitzes. We donate a macropod for every 10 we sell to a high school or a nonprofit so that they can use and learn from this technology. Um, we're also, I think, so when Dan came back from Africa, he had, there was a certain area in Cameroon where they were digging a well. Uh, and that area basically so they they can have fresh water to drink, uh, and macroscopic solutions help fund part of the development of that well. And every day I feel as if I really hope I could give a little bit more money actually to fund people's research because I've learned so many different types of research projects in this process that I I feel like basically the young people and even the scientists, what they're doing today is really going to be very beneficial for everybody's future tomorrow. And I, this is our way to be a part of it as a whole. So at first you're scientists, then business people, right? <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I think as a business person, it's it's important to well really be yourself, uh, and at the same time, I think you have to be humble. But you can't be greedy to succeed at, at all mm-hmm. in any way. So are you, are you a B Corp, or are you? A... Uh, no, so we are a partnership. We're an LLC. Oh, okay, all right, cool. So I'm saying you you sound like a B Corp. You know, you sound like you sound like a kind of a company that wants to give back and everything. Well, you are giving back. It's not want to, but you are. So I applaud you. Uh, thank you very, very much. Good. <laughs> so um, one of the things I, I wanted to mention, and, and Mark, first of all, you should tell everybody what your website is. Sure. So our website is www.macroscopicsolutions.com. 
And so one of the things that you're doing that's innovative on your website, just on this on the side, is uh, you've created a lot of fascinating images over the past few years, uh, and really detailed images that are works of art, even if you couldn't identify exactly what they're works of art from. So one, one of the pictures, uh, and you sell those as as you can you you can order a print online from Macroscopic Solutions. I love it. Uh, you one of them is a uh, scales from a moth's wings. Is that right? Yeah, and it looks like a it looks like a rainbow of uh, of like a of a molded roof. It's uh, it's really it's really a fascinating picture, and I'm actually thinking about putting up one on my office wall uh, because you never know what it is, but but it's really just a, such a highly intense image of a really gorgeous thing. So that's cool. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. We'll edit that breath out. <laughs> <laughs> so are there are there other industries that could use this uh, other than be, I mean I would assume there's many different types of scientists that could use this right but it, out of the science field is there is there any use for this or there are many creative ways to use this sort of technology um, I think the technology really as a whole is still in its infancy uh, we really are pushing the limit of what's theoretically possible in terms of magnifying an object. And, and one of the things that's so unique about the macropod is that we're illuminating the subjects. We're basically showing them as if you're a human shrunken down to the size of a pollen grain looking at another pollen grain. You're looking at it as the way your human eyes see it, which isn't as foreign as using a standard scanning electron microscope or a transmission electron microscope, which lack color altogether. They show the structure but it's still a little foreign in education, and there's some people that can't recognize or pick that information up. Okay. And you, all your subjects, they, I'm assuming they have to be static. I mean, it, the, because you've got a lot of uh, different focal, focal planes to deal with, it has to be a still uh, object that you're examining? Well, we innovate every day. So what's really, really neat about this is that because we interact so much with the researchers and the scientists who are using this technology, we get a ton of feedback about, can you do this? How can you do this? How can we incorporate this? Uh, so I'm always thinking, how is it that I can take exactly what our technology is, tweak one thing for a penny, and how can we shoot something else? So believe it or not, we shoot everything from large, small, um, living, dead. We've shot birds. We've shot hummingbirds. We've actually filmed hummingbirds flying through the air and slowed their wings down so you can actually see exactly how they're flying almost as if they're treading water in air wow. uh we've basically there hasn't been a challenge yet we've we've really turned down we've always been able to figure out exactly what we need to do next the next big challenge that we're facing currently um is actually an application for my own field it's people in geoscience basically we want to try to figure out how to reinvent the petrographic microscope which really is just a compound microscope, but it has two polarizers. And for that purpose, what it does is it'll take uh, certain optical properties within certain minerals, which are very, very unique to a certain type of mineral. And it's important to identify those because that's what's going to help you determine the overall rock type. So currently, there, the way you would, you would figure that out is use a petrographic microscope. But uh, just recently, I was able to afford a 3D printer, which has really helped me carry out a lot of ideas. Uh, and we built a system... Uh, just recently, that's going to convert um, the macropod into a petrographic microscope, but not only a petrographic microscope, but one that's extremely high in quality. And I'm assuming less expensive than a standard petrographic microscope? 
Well, one of the things that's so neat about this is you could actually sell it separately. So you can use your iPhone camera instead of the Macropod. You don't need the Macropod. So this wow. is this is going to be a product that you can sell for $100 and you just stick a slide on there and you can rotate it and you'll see all those optical properties just with your own two eyes. You won't even need a microscope, which is going to be very cool. But what we can do is release different products that are geared towards different things, such as stereoscopes, the existing microscopes, uh, and other tools out there so that other people can buy and plug into whatever resources they have. And in that sense, they're going to cut down costs significantly. Mm -hmm. So did you know you were going to go down this path of, of innovating these different products? Or was it because of the feedback loops that you were getting, you know, the feedback that you're getting from these scientists that you're like, oh, aha, you know, light bulbs were going off where, oh, we can do this or we can do that. I think it's always been my passion to be innovative and think forward. Uh, I, I think all my teachers would tell you I've always been a very bad student, uh, probably because I'm always thinking. If I hear something, instead of retaining that information, I'm trying to think, okay, look, why is this information there? How can I make it better? I've always thought like that. Um, so even I, I remember uh, sitting in Geoscience Day in undergrad, I remember somebody gave a presentation on LIDAR. And LIDAR, if you don't know what it is, is it's a plane that will fly over any any geographical landscape and it'll fire a laser down at the ground, and it'll cut out the vegetation so that you can actually look at the contours and the structures of rock beneath the vegetation and try to interpret certain boundaries, certain geographical and geological features uh, just by flying a plane over top of the landscape. And right away, it was everybody else is saying, okay, this is so cool, this is such a cool technique, there's so much you can do with it, and it's so true, but I was already thinking about, okay, what, what can I do to make this technology better? How can I plug it into this? And I've always thought like that. So it's, it's kind of nice being in my position because I get these questions all the time, and I'm always trying to think of solutions to them. So those planes, are those, uh, those planes like spot like megaliths and all those like uh, big, uh, big structures that uh, are being unearthed all over the, the world and everything like that? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's... I, all right, so for the most part, it is natural features, but to give you a really good example right here at home, uh, I'm sure if you've driven around Connecticut, just right outside of Hartford, you've seen some stone walls before. Yep. Um, Kate, who's a geologist at the University of Connecticut, she's under Will We Met, she had used LIDAR to analyze a lot of the structures across Connecticut. But one of the things that was really fascinating that she learned is that because those stone walls are right up against and underneath the vegetation, they're very, very vivid in all of the data. So you can actually map every single stone wall across the state of Connecticut by removing the vegetation and you can see it and you can quantitate exactly the length of the walls, where they are, uh, how long they've been there. Well, not necessarily how long they've been there, but you could, you could at least figure yeah. that out if it's sorting, sort of collapsing. Um, and from that, you can actually quantitate how long is this. And I think that somebody figured out that you, it, it would actually wrap around the world twice. Uh, that's how many stone walls there are here. Oh, I, I can imagine that. I know. I know. My father took like uh, I don't know seven or eight years, maybe even longer, to build the rock wall all around our house. <laughs> when we when we were younger, that that was his thing. He was taking rocks from all over the state, eating other states, and everything like that to uh, to build rock walls. So they're they're definitely prevalent in Connecticut. Well, you know, I was, was going to say, Mark, your innovative attitude probably makes you an excellent scientist. I'm sure it made you a really horrible history student. Because you're sitting there thinking, how can I improve upon this history? <laughs> <laughs> I was no good at history. <laughs> well, that's great. Uh, so where where to next? What is uh, what does the future hold for you guys in macroscopic? Um, so there there's a lot of things that we have in mind. I, I might actually give this one to Annette. I don't. I'm kind of curious. And never mind. She wants me to take this one. <laughs> 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 so. So really, um, what we're trying to do is advance this technology and get it to, to everybody that can use it very, very quickly. But at the same time, we are building these accessories that people can 
can use and plug into the technology. Um, in terms of forward thinking, there are lots of different ways that one can spin this. Uh, currently, I've reached out to three companies out west. Um, and one of the things we're trying to do is because we're focus stacking, which is, again, it's bringing a compilation of images completely into focus, which means that we have depth information. We have tons and tons and tons of 3D data for companies like Oculus, like Sony, like mm. Apple, who are about to take all of this information and convert it into virtual reality platforms, uh, 3D information, 3D data. And the problem is they don't have any data to plug into these systems, whereas we're sitting on mountains of it. So our next current step is to develop an application that's going to be able to utilize all of that 3D information uh, and, and basically very, very quickly and rapidly convert it into a virtually realistic image uh, that one can explore and use and see inside of using an Oculus headset. Uh, or something like uh, that. At that high resolution level. At that resolution level. And at the same time, we're working wow. with other researchers at other universities where we can start overlaying data. So we have external information to structure in color. Uh, however, we are not the best imaging system in terms of seeing inside something, such as an X-ray or, or um, a confocal or something like a CT scan. So one of the things we actually want to do is start integrating these data sets and overlaying them so that you can actually develop layers, see them in 3D. So now you can take a simple ant that you can't even see with your bare eyes. You can see inside of it. You can see where its organs are. You can see how its eyes look. Uh, and then you can zoom out and you can see its color uh, exactly as it occurs in nature. Okay. So, yeah, uh, yeah. That, there's a lot right there. Uh, I just got to put in quickly that, you know... Sadly enough, this is amazing technology. It sounds really exciting. And yet my first thought was, well, as the occasional video gamer, that'll just make for awesome explosions. <laughs> you, you know, you, what I was thinking about, I was like, somebody's going to take a, a picture of like Bigfoot or something like that, you know, and you're going to be able to, because what, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're saying that basically you can take a, regular picture and then make it into a 3d or you can understand like the depth of that of like you know like where things are within that and how far away they are from each other is that is that right or? there are a lot of people who are doing that that's not exactly and specifically what we okay. do because we don't just have one picture we have a, a number of images okay, that okay. we have information okay. and data from yep okay because i was thinking about i was like oh man you can like if somebody like snapped that little picture like bigfoot and they're like always figured out how tall was he and everything uh -huh. that'd be like oh yeah we can we yeah. know exactly how tall he is well you but you guys, <laughs> what you guys do is you work with an actual thing as opposed to a 2d image and and then take right. that three then take that you know thing whatever it may be the beetle or so on and then turn it into this 2d image that's perfect resolution and perfect uh uh focus yeah that's right so. And and one of the things too that to add is I mean we're we're talking and we're thinking forward with this technology, but but really even the platforms I mean there's a whole bunch of guys at Cognizus who are developing very very cool uh, hardware platforms. There's a bunch of guys that are software guys. Uh, Rick Littlefield with Serene Stacker we use these things are are great for today. Um, and thinking about tomorrow, it'd be really really neat exactly basically to learn and try to figure out exactly how we can make these things smaller or larger or quicker. So one one example that I like to always sort of bring about, one that Tony Gutierrez, the initial guy who pulled me into all this, always often said is, when you look around a room, it looks like everything that you're seeing is in focus, but really what's happening is your brain is adjusting your eyeball uh, to bring everything into focus. If you are to focus on one thing and look in the background, it is out of focus. Your eye is exactly like the lenses in your cameras. It's mm. how they work. So if, let's say one day, I mean, right now, I mean, people are getting hip replacements. They're getting all sorts of artificial parts. 
um, it is sort of the future is that humans are going to start turning into this uh, different sci-fi space age. They're, they're basically going to become mechanical beings. So one of the things you can sort of think about is using this software, speeding it up, using this technology, speeding it up. Eventually, you can actually create eyes uh, that are mechanically driven for people who are blind that are going to be able to quickly refocus, zoom in, zoom out. That's all this sort of technology. That's the space we're in. You're creating cyborgs. I, <laughs> <laughs> Listen, just don't invest in Cyberdyne. That's all we ask. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but... Uh, it's it, it just, just, just amazing because, uh, you know, where I think, where, where, you know, from where you started, which was a camera mounted on a, a movable tripod, right? And a mechanical, uh, system on it, a lot of take it, take the different pictures at different focal lengths. Um, it, and now what you're talking about is, is this technology evolving into something that can, you know, help substitute for the human eye or, or do other things. And, and frankly, I'm just still excited about the virtual reality part because, you know, E3 just ended, uh, the largest video game conference in the world. And there's a ton of money involved in that. And, and when you, and, and when you think about what they're doing, I mean, in the next year, we're going to see the release of at least three different VR headsets for the home in a way that people have never contemplated before. Uh, Oculus especially, which has two 1080p screens, one for each eye. Um, and right now they're saying it requires a computer to run it that frankly most people don't have in their home yet. Uh, but it, you know, it, being able to turn it into 3D images, being able to use it in, in real life active situations, being able to use it in many different ways, it just shows how technology can involve how one company starts with one idea and pivots into the future. Uh, it's really impressive, Mark and Annette. Very, very impressive. Thank you. I appreciate that, Dave. So, so one thing I, I actually kind of wanted to get some, uh, insight on, and I think there's a lot of people that would probably, um, benefit from this is like, so, so you two as business partners and uh, obviously, you know, fiance and, um, like, how does that work? Like, what, what do you guys, what roles do you guys have in the company? And then how do you separate the business from the, the real life, right? You know, like, how do you do that? Cause I mean, I, I, there's horror stories and, and also success stories about how that, that's worked out. So I'd be interested to kind of get your, your take on that. It's a good question. So obviously, <laughs> like, running a business is, is tough. And there are times that either both of us, we're juggling so many other things. I'm doing my PhD on top of this. So Mark is a little bit more involved with some of the day to day runnings of the company just purely because I don't have the time. But, um, I think where I really come in and, and step up is um, reading through everything, making sure we've got no spelling mistakes, that it, it, it's comprehensible for the general public. So there's no point in us putting out something that's full of scientific mumbo-jumbo jargon that no one's going to understand. Yep. Mark often needs a translator. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Very true. So it's really good to have somebody else to, to bounce ideas off and, mm -hmm. you know, hey, look what I did today. Isn't this exciting? Do you think this is worthwhile as a product or, you know, whatever? Mm -hmm. The other thing I, I can also add uh, to that is, Annette and I, we have to say, we're both very hardworking people. Um, she's very, very dead set in advancing her own science at the University of Connecticut and similarly in the company and me, certainly the company. Um, but our home life is, is a little bit different. Whereas, I mean, we don't have a television. We live in a very small cottage, uh, right on the side of a lake. And for us, I mean, we've always been very, very good at talking with each other. I mean, 
uh, from 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 pretty much morning to end. We we do share a lot of our information, what we do with our activities, and and basically we bounce ideas back and forth off of each other, and that's what uh, excites us most is actually sort of learning and getting through the day and figuring out what tomorrow is going to be. So for us, we live a very real lifestyle. We're not stuck um, looking at a lot of, oh, I think the way society sort of kind of pushes most people today, we're, we're sort of removed from that, whereas we really are focusing on our life's goals. Yeah. So, so obviously communication is key, right? For sure. And she's better at it than I. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're both very clearly supportive of one another, so that's great. Yeah. And, uh, and the, and the big dates in January in New Zealand. What a better place to get married. That's awesome. It'll be great. We're really excited. It's just something else that's on, on our plate at the moment. But we'll yeah. work through it. That's why you have two people working through. Everything is halved. Yeah. So Getting your PhD, running a business, planning a wedding. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a lot. It's just a couple of things. <laughs> yeah, just a couple of things on your plate. I, I feel like knowing you two a little bit, and you're getting married in New Zealand, it should be like, well, you're bungee jumping or something. <laughs> just, just very outdoor people who should be doing something exciting. Maybe, uh, Mark, you could be mountain biking. Uh, give the, you know, say I do at high speed. Oh, I wish. <laughs> <laughs> that I do. Yeah. Excellent. So, uh, any other questions, guys? Okay. No, I, I I think we've learned a lot in that. Um, I, I guess uh, the two questions, well, sort of one slash two questions that I have for you guys as, as we go to wrapping it up is, how do you feel about Connecticut? What, are, what have been the good parts about being in Connecticut, the bad parts about being in Connecticut? Just some thoughts. Yeah, I think that's an important question, one I might have overlooked. Um, but... You know, through time, I've really come to learn that I think Connecticut as a whole is a very innovative state. It's a, it's a group of forward thinkers. Um, I think a lot of people outside the state of Connecticut disagree with its politics. Um, but I've, I've grown to really, really enjoy politics and economics just from living here. Um, it's not just from owning a business. It's actually being a part of and, and seeing what's actually happening. I remember when I first moved here, I thought it was absurd that I had to pay property tax on parking my car in my driveway. <laughs> <laughs> but I think living here a little bit longer and seeing where the tax dollars go, it's there really is no better state than the state of Connecticut. I mean, for example, just just recently this summer, we have somebody helping us out. Her name is Susan Margolis. She's an incredibly wonderful and intelligent woman. She's a teacher at Danbury High School, and she's participating in a teacher externship program. So what she had done was apply through the state uh, to seek experience in a manufacturing company or a technology company in the state of Connecticut. And fortunately enough, she had decided to come work with Macroscopic Solutions. So the state of Connecticut, believe it or not, is paying her summer salary to work with us, help Macroscopic Solutions grow. And at the same time, she's learning valuable skills and valuable tools uh, that she's going to take back with her to her students when where she teaches technology. Uh, and then they're going to learn really, really fine hands-on examples uh, of of basically what she was learned, what she, what she was taught over over the course of the summer, and we're also trying to figure out ways in which we can actually continue this relationship. Whereas uh, even with our high school donation program with the Macropod, or as simple as I know that that she had had been very very influential in terms of getting the the that her class three uh, D printer. So even thinking of uh, building new products that maybe Macroscopic Solutions might help launch, so that even these students can actually become. Uh, owners of patents themselves and hopefully macroscopic solutions can help push, push those products out that are related to our industry of, of uh, imaging. Annette, any additional thoughts on being Connecticut? Obviously, being from New Zealand, it's a lot different to being back home. <laughs> 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 it's, 
And I, I've been to a couple of different states, not lived in, but but travelled through. And Connecticut is just so beautiful. There's just trees everywhere. And from a biology perspective, it's it's so exciting. Like all the wildlife is different for me. I think probably the only downside is that you really need a car to get everywhere. Mm-hmm. And currently we share one vehicle. Um, so that would be really the only limitation I think that we have here. You know, everything is relatively easy to get to, you know, malls and, and shopping, you know, supermarkets and stuff like that. An excessive amount of ticks. And, and excessive amount of ticks. <laughs> that That is a, a down, a downer, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's an occupational hazard that uh, most normal people don't think of for biologists. Yeah. But uh, Yeah, and poisonous plants. But I, it just kind of comes with the job. If you're being paid to be out, outside that's just one of your workplace hazards, I guess. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure, didn't they just, isn't there a new tech that just came around like this year or something like that? Uh, new like, disease, I think. Yeah, new yeah. disease, like from the tech, right? Yeah. So we not, not just have to worry about Lyme disease, we have to worry about something else. Something right? else, which I think is worse, but I, I don't really know much about it. All I know is I, I don't like ticks. <laughs> yeah. well, that's okay. That, well, we like to spread fear on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly so so. It, so for, these, for those of you out there listening, we're just telling you about a new disease that's unnamed and unquantifiable. Yeah, <laughs> And uh, very dangerous, and you should be worried. Yeah, um, we're not scientists. Over here, <laughs> right? yeah, yeah. Three of us are not scientists. <laughs> so, we learned a lot. Uh, thank yeah. you so very much for coming on and, and sharing with us. And I hope you'll come back and tell us more about how the company's doing. Maybe a year or so. Yeah, when you have that bionic eye, you know, you can come back and uh, <laughs> and show it off to us. I'll see you in fifty years. Great. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening, and uh, we appreciate your time. We really appreciate Macroscopic Solutions for being in here today. Thank you. You've just listened to the CT Startup Podcast. You can find us on iTunes or check out our webpage at ctstartup.com, where you can find all our social media links. And please, please leave us your feedback. Special thanks to our production team, Kate Rupart, Dylan Gilliatt, and Evan Dobis, as well as our equipment and marketing sponsor, Murtha Kalina, LLP.